Well, good morning, everyone. I want to first of all thank Pastor Deal for inviting me to speak again. Uh, and, and I want to let everybody know that I'm going to do my absolute best to not move so much. I, I had a couple people tell me last time they, they enjoy it when I'm up here to speak, but they get seasick watching me go back and forth. So I'll try to keep that to a minimum, but no promises. Um, <clears throat> before we, we actually get into it, though, uh, I would like to introduce a new couple in our church, please. Uh, Bill and Christina, will you stand up, please? Uh, I had the pleasure yesterday of marrying Bill and Christina Fry, and they're here as a married couple for the very first time. So welcome. I had a lot of fun yesterday, so that was, that was a great honor that I was able to be part of your day. Um, and then again, before we get started, I have like four of these before we get started, so just, you know, hold on. I promise, hopefully it'll be worth it. Uh, but I just want to honor all of our volunteers, our worship team, our tech team, uh, the, the folks that are out in the foyer greeting you and helping you find a seat, all of our kids ministry volunteers, our online hosts, the broadcast team. Like we have so many people that come together just to make a church service like this possible. And can we just give them a round of applause, please? They just do a fantastic job, and we are so grateful that we have so many people willing to volunteer in so many ways. And I know I left out a bunch of volunteers, and I'm sorry, but uh, we know you, we see you, we appreciate you, even if I didn't write it down. Like, I, I feel you, Nate. If I don't write it down, I got nothing, man. One last thing before I get into the message. And anybody who is in grades 6 through 12, I want to invite you next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, actually the 15th, to our annual New Hope Teens Christmas party. It's during our regular Wednesday night meeting, 6.30 to 8. Uh, this is going to be a great time. We're going to have food. We're going to have prizes. We do our annual white elephant gift exchange. Uh, Keenan and Clayton, no photoshopping my face on anything this year, okay? Thank you. Um, that, was, that was the most coveted prize last year. Um, it, it was funny, but they're still on my list. Um, but so if you are in grades 6 through 12, or if you're the parent, guardian, grandparent, whatever, of a child, the teen who's in uh, grades 6 through 12, we'd love to have them come join us next week. That's our last meeting for the year. We'll pick back up with our lessons and stuff uh, after the new year. Um, but also, if I haven't had the chance to connect with you, whether you're, you know, again, parents or teens or whatever, I would love to get the chance to meet you. And you can always find more information at mynewhope.in slash teens. All right, enough with the announcements, okay? Um, now, here is the actual message. So today, we're continuing our series on the nativity and some of the key people that were involved. And when pastor asked me who I wanted to speak on, uh, I decided, like, man, can I have the three wise men? And he's like, well, yeah, you can have that, because I've been fascinated with them ever since I was a kid. Like, one of my favorite songs when I was a kid, uh, <clears throat> even though I knew some unauthorized versions, uh, was We Three Kings. Like, we're, we're familiar with that song? You know, like, we three kings of Orient are trying to smoke a rubber cigar. That's one of the unauthorized versions. Or, uh, you know, uh, field and fountain, moor and mountain, terribly lost we are. You know, you guys have heard that one? Or, or following Ringo Starr. You know. Okay, like, anybody under the age of 30 is like, who's Ringo Starr? Actually, I know some of you guys know, know some of that. So, No, uh, you know, like those were some of the songs that we would sing until like either my mom or our teachers would be like, stop it, you need to be respectful. And you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. But no, the, the reason I've loved the, the wise men so much, though, my whole life is because of how mysterious they are. Like, who are these guys? Like, they, they just show up in a couple of verses in the Bible. They come out of nowhere. They're rich, and they're like, hey, Jesus, here's some cool stuff. And then they're gone. I'm like, 
what's going on with this? And so I wanted to really spend some time unpacking not only who they were, where they came from, why they came, but also what we can learn from the little bit that we know about them. And so we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come to you, a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And so the first question I have whenever I read through this is, who were these guys? And so I think we want to define the term wise men. The actual Greek word that's used there is magi, and and that is the root of our word magician. But these were not some guys that were pulling rabbits out of hats and scarves out of their sleeves and stuff like that. You know, some translations call them astrologers. Kind of like in, in the book of Daniel, you know, when he's, when, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the hand is writing on the wall and the king doesn't know what it says and like, what's going on? And the king says, hey, all you, all you astrologers and wise men come and tell me what this is all about. And none of them could, but then Daniel comes along and he's able to interpret and, and so on and so forth. But see, the important thing to realize about these guys is that they were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. See, at that time, the world was basically, in the Jewish mindset, was divided into Jews and Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, you were kind of out of the club. You know, the Jews were God's chosen people. And this is highly significant, as we'll look at it later, because this is an example of how Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, but that Jesus is for everyone. And see, these guys were learned. They were wealthy. They were influential. Um, they, they had, you know, lots of cash. They were able to bring these gifts. They were able to make a big trip at a time when people just really didn't travel that much. All right, so these are some important people. They were most likely part of the, the court of the king, and we'll talk about where they're from in just a second. So it's important that we understand that, that these were some high-class individuals, okay? They're not just some random dudes that are wandering around in the desert. These were important people. So where were they from? Well, most likely... They were from Persia. We've got a map here because, you know, I can't do a sermon without a map of some kind, right? So this is a map of the Parthian Empire. And if you see right here, this area right there, the red, it says Kings of Persis. But that is kind of the area of Persia, okay? So you can see over here on the coast is where Jerusalem would have been. So that is a significant journey. 
But Persia is in modern-day Iran, and there's a big desert in the way. All right, so this was a big deal for them to make a journey. It's not like, you know, they walked from here to Auburn, you know. This was a big deal for them to travel this far. Uh, so I did my own calculations, and based on the physical distance between the, the, the two areas and following the caravan trade routes and stuff, I estimate it's probably about a 40-day journey minimum. Now, you guys, when you do your own calculations, because I know everybody like calculates this in their spare time, right? Um, you know, you guys may come up with a little bit different number. Anybody else calculate stuff like, no, just me, okay. All right. I know nobody's going to raise their hand. Um, so this was a significant distance. And remember, it was in that area, in that culture, in that region that the Babylonian captivity took place. Babylon was just a little bit farther over, over to, the, uh, to the east, but this was all one big empire. And, and that's where, you know, uh, like I said, when, when the kings came and destroyed Jerusalem, that's where they took them. And that's where Nehemiah was and, and Ezra and all of these guys. So when did they come? Well, that's another great question. A lot of times, I remember when I was a kid, we, we had our nativity scene. I was not allowed to touch it, even though I kind of wanted to play with the figures, you know. Mom's like, no, don't touch that. And we would have the, the shepherds and a couple of sheep and maybe a cow and, and stuff and the manger and Mary and Joseph. And, and the three wise men always had to be like over here on another shelf until January 6th. And then they were allowed to come. You know, I was, I was raised Catholic and January 6th is the feast of the epiphany when the wise men came. And uh, uh, I was like, man, I always felt kind of bad for the wise men. You know, they like got kicked out until a certain date. But, but the truth is, we don't know exactly when they came. We don't know if they came on the night that Jesus was born. We don't know if it was years later and Mary and Joseph were still living in town. There's some indications of, of when they might have come. Um, because when Herod did his uh, killing of the innocents, when he told his men to go out and kill all of the babies, all the male children, two and under uh, in the town of Bethlehem, you know, he was allowing for the possibility that Jesus was even up to the age of two. So we don't know for sure, like I said, when the wise men came to honor Jesus. Could have been an infant, could have been two years old, we just don't know. But the reason I'm even talking about this is because, again, it was not an easy thing for them to do. It was not an easy thing for them to come all this distance. And we have to keep that in the back of our mind the whole time we're thinking about this. Sorry, Bob Ross keeps me... Keeps me lubricated here. <clears throat> and then how many were there? Well, traditionally, we think that there were three because, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? There were three gifts. Again, the truth is we really don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us how many there were. We just know that they were plural, that there was more than one of them. So there could have been two. There could have been 25. We have no idea. Uh, <clears throat> again, in the West, we, we traditionally think of them as three. In the Eastern churches, they, they think of it more likely as 12, and, and there's just all sorts of debate. But again, the important thing is that it was not just one guy by himself, that there was more than one, and they were there for a very specific reason. And they don't have names. Anybody ever heard the, the wise men named Caspar, uh, Melchior, and Balthazar? Good. Okay, a couple people, all right. I heard some, I'll take that as a yes. Um, <clears throat> that's what my kids do sometimes. I'm like, hey, did you like, you know, take the dishes out of the dishwasher? All right, I'm going to assume that was yes. Um, but again, we don't know the names of these guys. And, and sometimes tradition that's come down to us over the thousands of years is, is reliable. Sometimes it's not. But the truth is, we don't know what their names were. 
So we don't really know an awful lot about these guys. And for such a, a small, I guess I, I want to say, I don't want to say insignificant, but, but for people that were such a small part of the Bible, like why do we care? Like why is it important for us to look at this and examine it and think about it? Well, I have some answers for you. See, the Jews were expecting their Messiah. Remember so many times in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching and saying things, like sometimes even his own disciples would be like, Jesus, when are you going to like throw out the Romans? When are you going to restore King David's line? When are you going to become the military and political leader that we're looking for? And Jesus had to correct them. He's like, no, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here as a political figure. I am here to save people from their sin. I am here to heal people. I am here to make a way for people to come back to God. It's like, I don't really care about the Romans. I mean, he cared about the Romans in the sense that they needed saved too, but that wasn't his goal. His, his goal was not to create an earthly kingdom. But that's what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting the Messiah to come and be like a, a new King David who was going to unite everything and they were going to be a, a geopolitical power and it was going to be amazing and that they were going to be saved from the, the Romans who were conquering them right now, the Greeks who had previously conquered them under Alexander the Great, the Persians, the Babylonians, all of these peoples that had come and conquered them. They were finally going to get their revenge. But Jesus said, no, that's not why I'm here. Because those peoples need Jesus too. Just like I need Jesus. Just like all of us need Jesus. So when these magi came from this foreign land, foreigners, non-Jews, and they came and worshipped Jesus, it showed the entire world that Jesus was not just for the Jewish people, that Jesus was for everybody, that Jesus was for anybody who would come to him, who would lay down before him, who would say, you are the king. That's who Jesus is for. And that's why it is so important because John 3, 16 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that word world there, the Greek is kosmon. And it means not just like the physical world. You know, it's like, you know, God didn't love the trees and so that's why he sent Jesus. No, God didn't love rocks and that's why he sent Jesus. No, it means humankind. It doesn't say that God so loved the Jewish people, although he does. But God so loved humankind that he sent his one and only son. And some of the first recorded worshipers of Jesus we have were Gentiles from the East from far away, from a culture that had enslaved the Jews, enemies of the Jewish people. Some other lessons that we can learn from their story and their journey is they first went to the city of Jerusalem. They didn't go to where Jesus was. Now, there's a couple of different possibilities why that was. Maybe the the star led them to Jerusalem first. Maybe they had just missed the one scripture in in Micah that uh, Herod's men referred to. That said that he would be born in Bethlehem. We don't know. Maybe they just didn't, didn't see that one. But personally, I think it's probably because, like us, we don't go to look for a king in, in a small town. We go to look for a king somewhere important. 
We're going to look for a king in a temple or a city or a palace. And that's what they did too. But that's not where Jesus was. Jesus was in this little podunk cow town a couple of miles away. And I think sometimes we come to church because we think that church is what's going to make us feel better. We think that church is what's going to fill us up inside. We think that church is what's going to make our whole lives, all our problems disappear. But listen, it's not church that does that for us. It's Jesus. It's when we meet Jesus. Now, God has blessed us with a beautiful building. You know, we've got comfy seats. We've got air conditioning, although I can't feel it right now with these lights blazing on me. You know, but you guys are comfy, right? Um, you know, we have this amazing blessing that we can have these events here and we can do all this stuff and we can be comfy and, and all of these awesome things. But that's not where Jesus is. This building is just a tool for us to help people encounter Jesus. And so if you've come to church today because you think that coming to church is going to help, it might a little bit. But like, you know, I can encourage you with my words. I might be able to make you feel a little bit better with my words. But listen, you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from Jesus. Because I can't change your life. But he can. And those of you who have, have heard me speak before, you know I'm living proof of that. All right, I got to keep going. I don't have time for a testimony, but whoo. All right. Because peace is found only in Jesus, not in the things that we do. So why did these guys come? Well, the main reason is they heard the message, right? They almost certainly had knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. Like Daniel was a hugely influential person at, at the time he was alive, okay? Like he was part of the king's court. He was in charge of, of the wise men, basically. So he was prophesying during that time. So they would have had access to those scriptures after hundreds of years. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Like, that's a hugely important role. Like, he's holding the king's cup, right? So he had to be very highly trusted because who's going to slip poison in the drink? The guy that's holding it, right? So, of course, he was very highly trusted. Uh, es Esther, you know, she was one of, the, one of the queens of the Babylonians. You know, all these others. So the wise men would have had access to these scriptures. They would have known what the Hebrews believed. They would have known that the Hebrews were awaiting a Messiah, there's some Old Testament prophecies. There was a timeline that's laid out in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. Let me tell you, Daniel can be, can be tough to get through sometimes. It can be a little bit confusing. You want to learn more about it? Pastor Deal is your man. He has spent a long time studying Daniel and Revelation and the timelines and stuff. Uh, everything I know about it, basically, I learned from him. So uh, if you have questions about, you know, these weeks and seven and all this stuff, you know, talk to him. He can explain that to you. But, so Daniel lays out a timeline of when this is going to happen. And then Micah, we talked about him earlier, and 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So without that knowledge, the understanding of those Hebrew scriptures, the Magi would have been like, oh, look, there's a star. You know, like, oh, that's something new. What is it? But because they had this knowledge... They understood that. And it just sometimes blows my mind how God arranges things. Right? Like, hundreds of years ago, the Babylonians came and, and defeated Jerusalem and dragged their people off into captivity and stuff. And they did the same with Israel and whatnot. And, and then hundreds of years later, these wise men get to have these scriptures. And because of that, they get to come hundreds of miles again 
and worship Jesus when he's born. Like anybody ever read Romans 8, 28? You know, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Like, yeah, God works things together. He moves things around. He creates divine appointments. I, I heard, I can't remember who said this originally, but that, that coincidence is the language of the Holy Spirit. Like, there are no coincidences for people who are in Christ. It's God moving things around. So without having that message, the Magi probably wouldn't have made that journey. They probably wouldn't have come to, to worship Jesus. Who needs to hear the message from you? Is there somebody in your life that needs to hear the message about Jesus? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 15 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Here we go again. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, if you know, if you know Chet and Phyllis Swearingen, they named their ministry Beautiful Feet for that very reason. It's from that scripture because that's what they're doing. They're taking the good news out to the world. But see, every single one of us in this room are called to that very same thing. Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's the last instruction he gave to his people on earth. He said, go and make disciples. It's not optional. We don't get to just come into church on Sunday and sit here and feel good. I mean, that's wonderful. We come in here to get filled. We come in here uh, after the week has beat us up, being around, you know, the, the world is rough and stuff. We come here and we hear a hopefully good message uh, this week. Um, you know, Pastor and Pastor Adam, I know, always deliver great ones. But, uh, you know, but we come in and we see our Christian brothers and sisters, and, and they're like, oh, man, it's good to see you. Or, you know, we pray for each other and we worship and stuff. And this is where we get filled so that we can go back out and pour that love of Jesus back out into the world. Again, I, I can never remember. I need to write this stuff down, right, Nate? Uh, but the, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. All right. So why did they bring their gifts? So I've got another image here. In case you ever wondered what uh, uh, frankincense and myrrh looked like. So at the top, that is myrrh. In the middle, of course, is gold. And the bottom is frankincense. And so gold, we know, is a mineral. But frankincense and myrrh are both tree resins. If you've ever seen like a pine tree leaking sap, you know, that, that's a tree resin. But these come from a specific species of tree, and uh, uh, they come from actually two different subspecies of that same tree. Uh, so you only get one from, from each kind of tree. And these were hugely costly in the ancient world. They're still really expensive now. But, you know, gold was expensive, but it wasn't quite as expensive as these two. So the frankincense and the myrrh were actually the more valuable gifts because you couldn't get them everywhere. Gold was, you know, kind of around. Didn't have a whole lot of uses besides looking pretty. But these actually had some significant uses. 
So gold. Gold symbolizes honor. It was reserved only for wealthy people, princes, kings, things like that. And that symbolizes the kingship of God, of Jesus, that he is the king of everything. The frankincense. Frankincense was often used in temples. They were used in religious ceremonies because it smelled good. And, you know, sometimes it was used in perfumes as well because, you know, they, they, they had hygiene. They bathed themselves and stuff, but it's not like they had, you know, showers and deodorant and stuff. So, you know, they were walking along behind the donkey and the donkey's doing its donkey thing in the middle of the street. And, and you know, I mean, you step in it. You, there's not a whole lot of option, right? That's why, you know, we talk about in the Last Supper why it was so huge that Jesus washed the disciples' feet because your feet would get gross, all right? And so they would, you know, they would use frankincense sometimes to cover up that smell, but it, it has a priestly connotation. And so it was honoring Jesus as the high priest who would be forever, as, as written in Hebrews. And then myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming. It was used to uh, take care of a dead body. And it would keep down the smell. And uh, so myrrh signifies his death on the cross. So the gold is for his kingship. And the frankincense is because he was God. And then the myrrh was because he was a man. And that he would die for us. So all three were very costly gifts. But there was one more gift that they gave that was even more costly. That was the gift of worship. See, we get this idea that worship is something that happens for 15 minutes on a Sunday. And absolutely, what we do is worship. But it is so much more. What is worship? Worship is praise. And that's what we do on a, on a Sunday morning is we sing these songs of praise to our God. And we, we tell him how amazing he is. And, and we share our hearts with him. And that's wonderful. But it's also adoration. Adoration. See, the, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And it means literally to kiss the ground in reverence in front of somebody else. To bow before and acknowledge God's superiority and divinity. Now, please do not kiss the ground in here. We do vacuum the carpets. But, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I don't want you to get like a lip thing or anything, all right? But, but like, you know, remember how uh, they would like, you know, remember how they threw their coats down in front of Jesus at the triumphal entry? Yeah, you remember that? That was because so that he wouldn't touch the ground, all right? But so worship means adoration, which means acknowledging God's superiority over us. And it's obedience. We don't like that one. Obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Do you love Jesus? And obey his commands. Again, we don't like that one because we want to do our own thing, right? But obedience is part of our worship. So what are some characteristics of true worship? True worship is reverent. That means feeling and showing deep respect. Worship is based on truth, who God is as revealed in Scripture, not on who we think God is, not on who we want God to be. Worship is sincere. Isaiah 29, 13, I'm just going to paraphrase this real quick, says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where is your heart? Are you just honoring God with your lips? Or are you honoring God with your heart? It is heartfelt. It's not dull. 
So many times, you know, I, I, I can never judge someone's heart. I cannot judge someone's heart. Only God can see someone's heart. But sometimes I, I look around and I see people worshiping and they're like, we love you, Lord. You, you know, we bow before you. I just wrote that worship song. So, um, But right, like they're just standing there. And I'm not saying you got to be like, you know, running through the sanctuary with flags or anything, but you know, it's okay to be expressive. It's okay to raise your hands. It's okay to clap. It's okay to move around a little bit. You know, King David, this is the king, right? When they brought the ark back from, uh, from where it had been stolen by their enemies, he's dancing in front of the ark of the covenant and just like a linen shift, okay? And his wife, the, the queen, right, who was Saul's daughter, is like, look at you, you're making a fool of yourself. Why are you doing that? And he says, you know what? I'm dancing before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying I want you to, like, take your shirt off and start dancing through the sanctuary. Okay, please, stay in your seat, stay clothed, all right? All right? And I'm not saying that if you do just stand there, that you're not worshiping God. That's not at all what I'm saying either. But I'm saying if you feel moved by the Holy Spirit to raise your hands, do. You know, can you worship truly and heartfeltly by standing in your seat? Absolutely, absolutely. So please don't get the wrong impression. But if God is moving you to move, do it. If God is moving you to kneel down in adoration in your seat, feel free to do that. Because worship should be expressive. Worship is focused on God, not on us. And too often during worship, we're focusing on us and what we want and how we feel. And we need to keep our focus on God. And lastly, worship is a lifestyle. Paul, when he's talking about our freedom in Christ, still has this to say. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I remember years and years ago when I was a brand new Christian, I was reading The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Great book. And uh, he was talking about, like, you can worship God when you're putting gas in your car. And I was like, what? How the heck does that work? Well, I understand now. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Like, you know, do you volunteer to clean toilets somewhere? That can be an act of worship. Do you vacuum the carpet? That can be an act of worship. When you're cooking dinner with your family, that can be an act of worship. When you're saying hi to the coworker that drives you absolutely nuts and you smile at him anyway, that can be an act of worship. Whatever you do, if you're doing it with a right heart to honor God, that is an act of worship. So think about it. What can you do to worship God today? What can you do to honor him? Because the greatest gift that the wise men brought was worship. See, the, the Magi, they were wealthy, so they brought expensive gifts, right? But the shepherds that the angel appeared to that very first night, we know that that was the night Christ was born. The angels appeared to these shepherds. The shepherds were poor. They were probably dirty. Probably didn't have a whole lot of education. They're out in the field hanging out with sheep. I mean, you know, sheep are fine, but they don't smell very good usually, right? What did they bring? Did they bring any gifts? We don't know for sure, but doubtful. Scripture doesn't say. But they were poor. But here's what both groups had in common. They both heard the message about Jesus' birth. The shepherds from the angels, the wise men from the scriptures. They both stopped what they were doing to go and worship him. Because what they were doing was less important to them than worshiping the new king. 
The Magi traveled far, brought expensive gifts. The shepherds left their flocks, their livelihood, left them unprotected in the fields and went to Bethlehem. What gift can we give to Jesus this Christmas? Micah 6.8, we hear what God asks from us. It says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with your God. He wants us to follow his ways as revealed in his scripture and be obedient to him. He wants our hearts to be right, to be merciful and loving, and to walk with him. What's it mean to walk with God? It just means offer him our hearts, minds, and lives to make sure that everything we do is focused on him and that we are in constant communication with him. Now, does that mean we're like always like actually praying? But no, but we are always in the presence of God. When you're washing the dishes, you're in the presence of God. When you're driving to work, you are in the presence of God. We're not absent the presence of God. We're absent awareness of the presence of God. As we sing this last song, I encourage you, open your hearts. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now. What is missing in your worship for God? Who is he calling you to share the message with? My main challenge then, this Christmas, is what gift can you offer the King?